Hello and welcome to another episode of Miradas, a podcast on current affairs and culture in Latin America with your co-hosts Laurie Blair and me, John Bartlett. This week in our News Flash section, I spoke to Jamie Schenk, a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford, about the peace process in Colombia and her work on the consultation process in the country with regard to extractive projects. For our deep dive, Laurie then spoke to Andres Velasco, the former Chilean finance minister and dean of the LSE School of Public Policy in London, about his new book which takes the fight of populism in Latin America and beyond. In the culture section, Laurie caught up with writer and photographer Nicholas Gill, the founder of New Worlder magazine, to talk about new directions in gastronomy in Latin America, including some unique Amazonian foods and flavours that are only now becoming known to the wider world. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and as ever look forward to your comments and questions on social media at MiradasPod. Enjoy! With me this morning is doctoral candidate in sociology at the University of Oxford, Jamie Schenk who previously worked as a researcher in Latin American foreign policy at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. Her previous academic research has focused on the intersection between Colombian drug policy and the peace process, and her current work is looking at the legal economies of Colombia and the peace process as well. Thank you very much for joining us, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Okay, so at the time of uh, recording in late June, we have uh, already had 135 former guerrillas killed since the peace accord was signed in late 2016, and 311 social leaders and activists murdered. Uh, on top of that, we've had an ELN roadside bombing, killing two Colombian soldiers in the northeastern department of Arauca uh, earlier in June, and dissident FARC guerrilla blocks um, are also holding a kidnapped government soldier in the same region. So. Uh, peace is looking decidedly uh, unsteady at the moment. Uh, Jamie, so how fragile is the uh, 2016 accord looking uh, and to what extent is Colombia's civil conflict actually over? Yeah, so I think it depends on who you ask um, how the peace is going. If you ask the Duque government, they've come out quite strongly in recent weeks kind of to defend peace and say that it's going well. If you ask pretty much anyone else. Um, I think the debate is actually whether or not the peace process has failed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I would go as far as that, but I think if we talk about just even the security dynamics that you um, kind of pointed to, it's clear that um, Colombia is is not at peace. Um, I think it's better to say that the conflict has transformed rather than um, has ended after the 2016 peace accord. Um, I think in many areas, actually, uh, the country has become more insecure since 2016. And in part, it's because um, where uh, territories were actually quite stable in terms of who ruled because of the FARC had kind of consolidated its power. Since demobilization, you've seen a lot of groups actually move into those areas. The situation become much more fluid, more actors um, those existing actors strengthening. So, for example, you talk about the ELN. They were quite small when the FARC demobilized. They've now actually grown in number, and um, uh, they've continued attacks both in the territories and actually in Bogota. Similarly, the situation for social leaders and for demobilized FARC um, is extremely um, fragile. They've been the subject of uh, attacks, um, even leading some, I know, to question kind of whether or not we're seeing a replay of 1980 when you had a massive kind of what they call a genocide of um, FARC's political arm um, that was created out of that peace process. Um, and in terms of FARC, uh, the the question of whether or not guerrillas have gone back into war is, an, is another massive issue. Um, it depends on sort of how you count, um, but kind of between 1,500 uh, FARC who were demobilized and then gone back into fighting um, up to 3,000, that includes, um, Reuters had 3,000 recently, and that included those who never actually entered into the peace process. So um, I think what we see now in comparison to 2016 actually is a much more uncertain security situation, um, a lot of uh, uncertainty over who really controls certain areas, and that's increased um, violence. So we see the increased violence in parts of Arauca on the Venezuelan border in Choco, um, as a result, actually, of demobilization um, rather than a consolidation of peace in those areas. 
And so your, your current research is on community consultations in Colombia. Um, how is the process? How does it work? And, and why are they important and how do they fit into this scenario? Yeah, so my current research looks at community consultations specifically around extractive um, projects. In Colombia, those are called consultas populares. Those are what the community consultations are called. Um, and as sort of a, a mechanism, it's actually quite a broad um, they're meant to be quite broad. So they were first introduced in, in the 1991 constitution. Part of that constitution's um, goal of opening up the political system to more people expanding political rights. So they're uh, similar to sort of a local version of a plebiscite, like a national plebiscite, um, where local communities, local mayors um, can kind of call for citizens' input on various things from the redrawing of municipal boundaries uh, to the changing of a market day um, to kind of broader questions. Um, since 2013, we've seen communities use them as a sort of way of contesting extractive projects in their territory, so large-scale mining or um, oil or fracking projects. Um, so basically, they kind of will come up with a question, do you support or not um, extractive projects in their territory and vote either yes or no. Um, so how they fit into the peace process is what I'm really interested in, um, kind of what the connection is between these consultas and peace. And in one way that they do that is that um, the extractive industry has been really promoted by both this government and the previous one as um, they call it like the local motor of um, the locomotive of the post-conflict economy. So really as kind of a linchpin of how to um, both finance piece and how to kind of open Colombia up for investment um, now that supposedly the civil conflict is over. Um, and in doing so and trying to attract foreign investment, um, you really see this sort of disconnect or, or um, contest between the national government's plan for development and what local communities want, because their vision of development post-conflict is quite different um, from these large-scale extractive projects. Sure, and I think there's always been a um, a disconnect between the kind of the peripheries of Colombia and the centre. Uh, I don't know if you'd I don't know if you'd agree with that, but I think that um, it's it's clear that kind of moving into a post-conflict economy, we're going from uh, sort of more traditional formal sectors such as coffee to extractives. Are these two things kind of in direct competition? Uh, these two kind of economies. I don't know if it's necessarily two different economies, but I think two different ways of life. And I think this is, that's where you really see the, the conflict in these, um, in these consultations is that uh, it's, it's a question of how territory will be used and who gets to make decisions as to how that territory is used. Um, so it's something as simple as in the Colombian, in the Colombian um, uh, kind of constitution, the state owns the subsoil, that's the land below the surface, whereas a community can own or individuals can own the topsoil. Um, so there's this kind of weird overlapping of rights where the community may say we're an agricultural community or most recently Salento, who um, which is a community that um, both kind of pursue different ways of banning extractives. They are a massive tourism hub. Um, so they say, no, like our economy is built on tourism. And that's this, that's kind of what we see for the future. Um, but they ha they sit on top of mineral deposits. So the state can then sell off those kind of rights to the uh, mineral deposits underneath. So you see this kind of overlapping of priorities of um, communities that may want to stay as agricultural communities or invest in tourism and the state that really, um, that wants to attract companies that look at what's underneath that soil and wants to um, exploit that. Sure. And so what does all this mean for how peace is implemented in Colombia? Yeah, so I think it's an interesting sort of microcosm to look at what you talked about earlier of this sort of disconnect between the center and the territories. And I think this is sort of a broader question around peace that uh, has been talked about in Colombia today, where the Santos administration really had this sort of territorial focus, and that's what they promoted as kind of the linchpin of their peace process, is a territorial peace. So built from the local communities outwards with a focus on victims and a focus on um, local input um, versus Duque's vision, which is more sort of security-based, and that security is built first in Bogota. Um, so I think it's kind of this um, tension, this back and forth between um, where the balance of power lies, whether it lies with local communities or whether it lies with the national government. 
Okay, so what does the what does the future look like it holds at the moment for Colombia? You, you mentioned this kind of fundamental fundamental departure uh, under Ivan Duque, the current president, from Juan Manuel Santos before, whose focus was more on peace, uh, whereas Duque is looking at his kind of new national development plan on security and economic development. What does the future hold? Are we going to are we going to see peace hold in Colombia? I think we're in a moment of kind of uncertainty. I think it can really go either way. Um, this year is a year of local elections, and I think that will be a big determinant and kind of where um, what peace looks like moving forward. So if you see candidates from Ivan Duque's party doing extremely well in these local elections, then that sends a very different signal than if you see the opposition doing well. So if you see leftist groups who have really um, run under this banner of preserving peace and forcing the government to really commit to um, the peace process. Um, so I think right now it's really kind of unclear which direction that will go in and whichever way it does will have really big impli- um, implications for whether this sort of securitized approach prevails or whether the territories can really sort of either on a local level implement the peace process or force the government to really kind of uh, uphold its commitments um, to what they agreed to in uh, 2016. Jamie, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, uh, so I'm here in the uh, LSE in London with Professor Andres Velasco, who is uh, an economist and and a professor. Uh, He was uh, Chile's finance minister uh, under Michel Bachelet between 2006 and 2010. Uh, and he is currently the Dean of the newly created uh, School of Public Policy at London School of Economics, where we are today. Um, He's also uh, an author, um, uh, most recently of Liberalismo en Tiempos de Cholera, uh, with uh, co-author Daniel Breva. Um, And the book uh, sort of puts forward ideas for a politics, I'm quoting here, which which joins freedom and and, uh, and equality to sort of... um, stick it to, to, to populism uh, effectively. Um, Professor Velasco, thanks very much for, for, for coming on, on, on the podcast. Um, My wanted, pleasure. Thank you. I, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the, the, the book and, and sort of what your kind of overall thesis is and, and how, why you were sort of motivated to, to write it. The book comes out of a um, frustration and um, a hope. The frustration and the fear is with the um, uptick or upsurge, one might say, of populism in politics all over the world, rich countries like the US and the UK, uh, not so rich countries like Turkey and the Philippines uh, or Mexico or Brazil. Um, And uh, whether it's of the left-wing or right-wing variety, populism is toxic not only because it advocates bad policies but because it ultimately often uh, is anti-democratic as we can see very clearly in in Venezuela. That's the concern, that's the fear. Uh, the hope, and one might even say the conviction, is that there is a set of ideas uh, with which one can um, combat populism. You know, you don't fight populism back with more populism, as some people are trying to do. But uh, because populism is profoundly illiberal, um, the best antidote to populism is liberal ideas. And my co-author and I, my co-author is a trained political philosopher, uh, who hails from Oxford in the UK, um, we um, believe that there's a set of ideas which we call progressive liberalism, which is not simply some combination of the right and the left, but it's actually a distinct set of ideas, uh, which, as you were saying, uh, believes that equality and and freedom um, actually uh, are two sides of the same coin. Typically, the left uh, advocates equality, sometimes to the detriment of freedom, and the right claims, although the claim is not always believable, <laughs> to um, advocate freedom, uh, sometimes to the detriment of equality. A progressive liberal believes that, yes, freedom is very important. That's why you know, we're liberals. We think that ultimately people ought to be able to decide the course of their lives. But uh, you know, a, a poor child at a shantytown in Latin America is not really free to lead whatever life he or she chooses because uh, of lack of education, resources, and opportunities. Um, so true liberty requires a dose of equality and the book is about conceptually how we think about this and, and practically how we might get there and, and so you know, you've mentioned there the examples, a few different examples 
you know, uh, Venezuela, for example, we think might think about uh, Brazil, perhaps in this context mm-hmm. as, as well. Um, you know, uh, AMLO in Mexico is often sort of put in this bracket. Do you sort of, would you tend to see someone like Nicolas Maduro, mm-hmm. Bolsonaro, AMLO in the same bracket? Or, or are there kind of important distinctions you would draw? In one very important dimension, they do belong in the same bracket, the same category. Populism is not an ideology. Um, it is not a set of policies. Um, it is not um, for big government or against big government. Or um, It is a style of doing politics, uh, which has three components. The first one is um, a denial of the complexity of the world. Uh, and uh, the corollary is that populist propose simple, simple-minded and sometimes outright stupid solutions to very complex problems. The, 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 the poster child of this being, of course, Donald Trump, who in response to the delicate and difficult uh, conundrum of migration in Central and North America simply screams, let's build a wall, which everybody, including his supporters, know will accomplish nothing, but which... Um, looks good um, on a sign during a demonstration. Secondly, populists deny pluralism. Um, What do I mean by this? Well, if you think the world is simple and that complex problems have simple solutions, well, no need for different views uh, because um, my solution is simple and it's got to be right. Um, And uh, a man we cite in the book is a guy called Miller, who's a professor, German-born American professor at Princeton, who says that uh, this denial of pluralism is um, uh, a particular moralistic way of doing politics in which my view is the right one, you know, often because it is the view of the people, and any other view is not only wrong but uh, potentially illegitimate. The third and last component of populism as a style of politics is um, a refusal to acknowledge the need for checks and balances. Which follows directly from the other two, because if this, you know, the world is simple, there's only one right view, and all the other views are illegitimate, well, there's no need for, say, Parliament to be checking on the executive, or for the Supreme Court to be checking on Parliament. Um, um, and that is why often, um, Venezuela is probably the most extreme and dramatic and painful case, but not the only one, often you get a slide um, into um, authoritarianism. Um, authoritarianism today in Latin America is a very different beast than in the 80s when, when generals in, in sunglasses pulled coups and uh, violently took over the state. Mm-hmm. The case of Chavez and then Maduro shows a different way in which you are elected by popular vote, but gradually you put your friends in the Supreme Court, uh, you pack the um, electoral tribunal with your supporters, and ultimately, as Venezuela did, when you lose the elections and the... Um, uh, the parliament turns against you, well, you uh, deprive the parliament of any real power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, uh, Venezuela is uh, no longer a democracy, but for a long time it was an illiberal democracy, meaning you had you had elections, but you had no political rights, no freedom of the press, no, um, no equal opportunity to um, compete and then exercise power. Mm-hmm. So the combination is three things, denial of complexity, denial of pluralism, and a refusal to accept checks and balances mm-hmm. puts populists on a very dangerous and often undemocratic course. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, you've, you've sort of been at the front line of, 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 of Chilean politics and the kind of discussion about politics and policy in, in Latin America for, for, you know, several decades now. Um, You're making yourself older. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least that's say for, yes. for 20 years or so. Oh, you 20, know, years, yeah. um, 20 uh, getting on 25. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and, and, you know, I, 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 was, I was able to put, to put this question to you, actually, uh, at, at, at the end of a conference quite recently, and I think your answer, your answer was, was quite interesting, so I'm going to sort of restate it again for the benefit of our, of our listeners. You know, do you think there are sort of self-critiques or, or uh, which, which, you know, um, Let's talk about the Chilean context, for example. We had those sort of um, two terms of, of Nueva, Nueva Mayoría uh, uh, governance in Chile. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are things which, or, or perhaps in, in the context of Mexico or Brazil, mm-hmm. were other things which, which should have been done or could have been done by these more moderate centre-left, centrist administrations to sort of, um, let's say, uh, vaccinate or immunise their, their societies against these kind of mm-hmm. these risks of, of, of populism, as you, as you describe them? Well, my first reaction is to say that uh, there's no no vaccine that gets rid of the bug. Mm-hmm. Um, 
proof of that is that highly affluent countries with long democratic traditions like the UK uh, or some Scandinavian countries are seeing a resurgence in populism. So um, you can be very rich and very well educated and have had democracy for 200 years and you can still catch the bug. That's my first answer. Mm. Secondly, of course, there are always more things that you wish you had done and there are always things that you wanted to do and didn't get accomplished. But in the particular case of Chile, I think the 20 years between 1990 and 2010 the 20 years of, uh, of uh, the Concertación coalition in power were, and I, and I say this responsibly, it's not simply a throwaway line, by far the most successful in Chilean history. Mm. You know, uh, in, in 200 and some years of independent life, Chile never had a combination of, first, a return to democracy, second, a widening of individual freedoms and political rights, uh, and thirdly, uh, a big expansion uh, in uh, economic and social uh, welfare. And this is not simply GDP growth or investment figures. If you look at the uh, UNDP uh, Index of Human Development, Chile during that period uh, uh, um, underwent the biggest rise of any country on the planet. Um, and in fact, uh, the UNDP, not me, says that Chile achieved um, you know, high human development status. Um, mm -hmm in that period mm. uh, and of course in that index you have things like you know, access to running water and things like access to medicines, life expectancy, uh, infant mortality, uh, women's rights. And Chile is far from perfect in all those categories but I think um, much, was, uh, much was accomplished. Mm -hmm. Is Chile still an unequal society? Of course it is. Is it less unequal and, and, uh, and less frightened than 25 years ago? Of course it mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. I should, add, I should add also for our listeners, of course, you know, your conduct as finance minister was sort of widely praised as a kind of catalyst in, in that process in terms of, you know, saving uh, revenues from that extraordinary sort of commodities boom, which mm -hmm. we saw in the, mm -hmm. the first half of this, the first few years of this century. And Thank you. Well, we, we, what you've seen in Latin America is, is two very different ways of dealing with that commodity boom. There are some countries which took the money and spent it all and then uh, in addition borrowed um, when times were good and then found themselves in desperate financial straits. Mm. Again, Venezuela is the, the, the dramatic and extreme example. Venezuela uh, went through a massive oil boom and today uh, per capita income, nobody quite, not quite knows because all the figures are, are doctored, but a reasonable estimate by Venezuelan economists would tell you that, that the per capita uh, output in Venezuela today is about half of what it was in normal times. Mm -hmm. There is no case in modern human history uh, in which there has been such a deep and sustained fall in, uh, in economic activity. This is bigger than the Great Depression, bigger than the Mexican Revolution, beginning of the 20th century. It's bigger than the recent Greek crisis. It's bigger than the Latin American debt crisis of the 1980s, etc. So some countries really um, handled the, the, the commodity boom terribly. Mm. Um, other countries which went down the same path, although the results are not quite as extreme, uh, include Argentina. Um, where um, there's a lot of you know government as a size of GDP, as a share of GDP went from you know the mid twenties to the mid forties, mm. um, uh, and you know that could be good or bad depending on what you spend the money on and also depending on whether the expenditure is uh, sustainable or not. Mm -hmm. It turns out that commodities that uh, went down in Venezuela, I mean, and Argentina found itself with a massive fiscal deficit and a great deal of debt. Mm -hmm. So Argentina had one default already ten years ago, and some people are talking about a second Argentine default. Yeah. Chile is at the other uh, extreme of that spectrum. You know, we understood very well that um, commodity prices go up and go down, and the history of Latin America is a history of commodity booms that ended in disaster. And as a result, we did what every you know mother or father does in a well-run household. Namely, when you have extra income, you save some of it because um, there could be a rainy day in down sure. down the street. And of course, that rainy day came uh, massively and dramatically when Wall Street and the world melted down a decade ago. Of course. And, um, you know, the Chilean economy was very well prepared to receive that crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a very brief recession, and employment rose, but, but, but not very much. And essentially, most Chilean citizens didn't, didn't feel the, um, the crisis, whereas Britons or Americans or Spaniards, uh, let alone Greeks, are still suffering from the consequences. Sure. 
Um, I, I want to kind of return to, to the sort of Chilean and, and Latin American uh, mm-hmm. contemporary situation in, in a second. Um, but one kind of final question on, on, on the sort of populism mm-hmm. question. I wonder if there are sort of contexts where you think that populist governance, populist movements are not only kind of uh, inevitable, but might even be beneficial. I mean, I'm thinking perhaps historically someone like uh, Juan Alvarado Velasco in Peru with a sort mm-hmm. of agrarian reform or, or sort of even perhaps the early years of, of Chavismo or, or... But see, I think what is implicit in your question is, is something that I completely and totally disagree with. Mm. Um, populism is not sort of a useful corrective to the failures of democracy and capitalism, of which are many. Uh, it is an attack on democracy uh, and the market. Um, and um, let's take the two examples that you have just mentioned. Um, both of those uh, experiences uh, had two lasting and, and terrible consequences. The first one was, you know, the economy was mismanaged, and of course in the short run you don't feel the consequences, but in the long run you do, and it's not the rich who pay, the, you know, the, the Peruvian rich and Venezuelan rich um, uh, in due course got their money out of the country and put it in Miami. They didn't pay the bill. It was the middle class and the poor who did. Secondly, in both of those countries, um, democracy collapsed uh, and you ended up with dictatorships. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Venezuela, a dictatorship that is in place already, and in Peru, the sequence of dictatorships and a return of democracy in another dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So I don't see those experiences as having been desirable in the least. On the contrary, when you look at the cases of lasting social change in Latin America, uh, they did not come from what I am calling populist experiences. Mm. The Concertación in Chile, which you know, demonstrated you could increase the standard of living of people on a sustained basis, mm-hmm. was not populist. If you look at um, Brazil under Cardoso, and then you know the early Lula years before Lula developed bad habits, was also not a populist experience. Mm-hmm. There are two examples there. Um, Again, populism is not an ideology, so uh, I am certainly not saying that every time you have a left-wing government that reduces your income, you have a case of populism. Uh, Far from it. Mm. Uh, Populism is a style of politics, and sometimes populists are extremely uh, right-wing, like Bolsonaro, sometimes they're very left-wing, like Chavez, and sometimes someplace in between. Yeah, I think that is an important uh, uh, distinction to make there. Um, And, 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 you know, thinking about the kind of... the current panorama in Latin America, are there sort of governments, uh, you know, finance ministries even, which you sort of see and you, and you kind of admire, you think, okay, there's some really interesting work going on there, they're, they're sort mm-hmm. of, you know, blazing a trail. Are there governments in particular, you know, which... which you well, there, there are no governments that are getting stellar results today because um, most countries are going through a different phase, difficult phase, sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, the commodity boom ended uh, three or four years ago and countries have had to... Uh, adopt some, you know, fairly extreme measures to uh, keep their economies from tanking. But you do see experiences that are reasonably successful. For instance, uh, I've always been impressed by the way Colombia, uh, Colombia has lots of problems so in, in the political sphere, of course, but um, Colombia is a country which for 25 or 30 years has avoided uh, uh, defaults, never had any financial crises and bank failures, never had any, um, hyperinflations uh, or fiscal uh, meltdowns, never had any either. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are many things that you can uh, point your finger to in Colombia and say this is not quite right, but here's a middle-income country that for a generation now has had a you know, reasonably prudent management of its economy and where per capita income today is two or three times what it was a generation ago. That's not a trivial uh, achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, Chile is the other case, I think, where you've seen some of the same. Peru is an interesting case because um, even though no government in Peru is ever popular, uh, the, the running joke in Peru is that, um, is that um, the growth rate of the economy is typically higher than the popularity of the president, no matter who the president may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, in spite of that... Um, Peru is a vastly more prosperous country than it was um, 25 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and the economy has modernized a great deal. Again, it remains an unequal country. There are big differences between Lima and the interior. Um, 
but uh, I think it, I would be hard pressed to make a case that didn't conclude that Peruvians are better off today than a generation ago. Mm -hmm. There are three countries in which it's not one radical moment of success, but in which over 20, 25 years you have a fairly steady performance. Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting how some governments, uh, which on the political side are populistic, like Morales and in Bolivia mm -hmm. have been reasonably cautious and prudent and conservative on the fiscal side, um, mm -hmm. which again breaks the uh, equation you're implicitly making between between um, populism and a particular kind of, uh, of economic policy. Mm -hmm. uh, Morales is a man of the left, no question about it, but uh, when it came to handling Bolivia's newfound gas revenues, uh, the Bolivian government has actually been quite prudent. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, I think the other failings in the case of Bolivia, you know, when, when a man changes the name of the country so that he can get himself re-elected, that's not exactly a shining example of democratic politics, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think it is interesting that in spite of that, economic management has been you know, quite prudent. And I think Bolivia is an interesting example when you think of Mexico now. Uh, I think the jury's still out on what the AMLO administration will be like, but one point that I've made in a couple of, uh, of seminars and, and, and public debates is that maybe try to understand AMLO once you think about Bolivia, which is a mm. case in which one would not exaggerate if one claimed that uh, Bolivian political and democratic institutions have been weakened, not systematically, but from time to time by the government's doings, but where um, you know, the government has not made a hash out of the economy. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the way Mexico will turn out to be. Absolutely, and I think you know, many on, on the sort of left or even indigenous groups in Bolivia are quite disappointed with, with, with the Morales administration there as well, um, which I think we're beginning to, beginning to see with AMLO as well in Mexico. Um, just, just, just two, two more uh, kind of quick things. I, I wonder if you see some of these, um, if you're worried or concerned about some of these... Uh, um, Warning, warning signs of populism in, in the Chilean context. You know, we've had statements from Sebastián Piñera that he sort of wants to close the border to migrants with with, mm -hmm. mach with machetes and yes. you know a certain kind of rhetorical excesses. We had some sort of critiques of of the of the Museo de Memoria in, in mm -hmm. Santiago as well. Are you are you worried about about that these kind of things happening in Chile? That's a very good question, and the answer is yes, I am worried uh, about two things in particular. I don't think you could call the overall administration of Sebastián Piñera a uh, populist, but as you correctly point out, uh, the positions the government has taken on a couple of issues do have the unmistakable scent of populistic expectation of an issue, and migration is uh, exactly that. Uh, last year, the government decided to... Um, detain and expel from a country a number of migrants who had uh, been found guilty of committing crimes in Chilean terrain. So on, 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 on legal grounds, the government was doing what it could, what the, lay, the law allowed them to do. But the whole sort of mise-en-scene, uh, you know, it was quite harrowing to watch on TV for a week or two every day at 6 a.m., you know, migrants would be loaded into a military plane, you mm. know, uh, escorted by a bunch of Chilean policemen with the interior minister who stood there, arms crossed, looking mm. sour and dour. Um, you know, it was a, a made-for-TV show, which reminded one of the way migrants are treated in other countries in which the rule of law is not, uh, is not quite the rule of law. Um, it's an indication, it's not the overall thrust of a regime, but I found that worrisome. I also do worry about um, the inability of established parties to respond to rising populism on the extreme right and the extreme left. Um, and this is connected to our book. Um, while the traditional parties of the Chilean right and left are not populist in the sense that I've been describing, they don't have the conceptual apparatus to mount a credible defense of democracy and liberalism. And as a result, often, you can also see this in Europe, often end up mimicking some of the more extremist positions as a way of avoid being outflanked. Mm. 
And of course, in the end, this misfires because um, if you're on the right and you try to be, you know, more right wing than the extreme right wing on 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 um, migration, well, in the end, um, you're uh, you're giving in to the uh, extremist view, mm. and voters understand that. And between a true extremist and an extremist lookalike, we'll find we'll vote for the true extremist. Mm. You've seen that happening among conservative parties and even social democratic parties in Europe when it comes to migration, right? Sure. Uh, and in, in, in Chile, that's true on the right when it comes to migration. I think it's also true on the left when it comes to certain socioeconomic issues. For instance, in Chile, there's an ongoing uh, debate on inequality, for instance, or one on education, one on pensions, in which um, the far left has taken positions which I find... Uh, not exactly well thought out, to put it politely, and which again have the unmistakable scent of, of, of economic populism this time around, and you find some of the traditional parties of the left, you know, moving to the extreme because they worry about being outflanked. Mm. Does that strategy produce good policies? No. Does that strategy uh, prevent traditional parties of the centre-left from losing support? No, for exactly the same reason, because once you move to the extreme, well, you know, between real Coke and, and and Pepsi, people prefer you know the real thing, right? Um, so you see social democratic parties in many countries of the world. Chile is no exception. Uh, losing support, um, socialist party of Chile is facing a big mess among other things because uh, they ran an internal election, which now, you know, the, all the facts are not known yet, but it is clear that um, some of the vote counting and some of the people who got to vote were not exactly um, playing by the rules. Mm -hmm. um, so again, you have a right. You have, you, have, you have the risk, as it happened in many countries in Europe, that the social democratic or social part, socialist party will be um, overtaken by um, populist elements on the far left. Well, I think that's that's probably a, a good moment to, to close on because we're we're running out of time. Um, um, we could talk for, for far longer, I'm sure, um, about the, these these things. Um, uh, I should mention as well for our listeners that, that Liberalismo in Tiempos de Cholera is, is available uh, on Apple Books uh, and, and, is, and is also part of a kind of broader project which might see some, also some publications in English uh, in the coming uh, months and, and years as well. When I came to the LSE I gave uh, an inaugural lecture on populism and there's both uh, the podcast and the text of that lecture can be found on the LSE. School of Public Policy website. That's great. We'll, we'll link to those in the in the show notes. Um, but for now, uh, Professor Andres Velasco, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, so I'm here talking via Skype with the writer and photographer Nicholas Gill, uh, whose work explores the boundaries and possibilities of cuisine uh, in the Americas. Um, his work has featured with the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, many others. Uh, he also co-wrote the book uh, Central, uh, or Central, maybe I should say, with uh, Peruvian chef Virgilio Martinez, published uh, in 2016. Um, and in that same year, he also founded a website uh, dedicated to the food and places of the Americas called New Worlder. Um, I really recommend that our listeners uh, go and check it out. It has some fantastic uh, stories, recent ones. Uh, include uh, how Panama's culinary scene became the envy of Central America, uh, a piece on Latin American gins, a piece on gastronomy in Manaus, um, an interview with uh, the pioneering Mexican chef Gabriela Camara, who is also, I think, due, due to become an advisor to, uh, to AMLO as well, uh, Mexico's president. Um, and uh, Nicholas also focuses on the relationship between sustainability and food uh, in the Amazon. Um, and he's written, for example, about uh, the long-lost wild vanilla of Bolivia. Um, so, uh, Nicholas, thanks so much for, for joining us um, today. Thanks um, for having me, Lawrence. Fantastic. No, it's our pleasure. Um, so you're writing, obviously, in a really interesting uh, uh, segment um, and, and, and focus in terms of... If you think about the coverage on Latin America, we have lots of politics, lots of economics. But it's really interesting, uh, the area that you're working in. Can you kind of give me a flavour of how you came to be doing this, uh, this this kind of work, and, and maybe you can tell us a bit about, about New Worlder as well, and what the, yeah. the philosophy is behind yeah. that. Of course, yeah, so I moved to, I, I was a food writer um, before I ever even really explored Latin America, and um, about 
15 years ago, I guess. I, I just started traveling a lot there, and then I ended up living in Peru. And I just saw how kind of rich the cuisine was, and it was right at the time where kind of like Gaston Acuria was starting to kind of become famous and just Peruvian food started to kind of catch on around the world. And it just, it, I, I think it was just my dumb luck for being there at the right time that it's it's kind of like remained my focus since then. And um, in the, while I've kind of plugged away at, you know, New York Times and all these other food and travel magazines for the last 15 years, I started New World or just because I, I needed, there was so much depth to the, what was happening with cuisine in the region so much mm. potential and possibility and history that I just didn't have a single place I could I could really just write about the things I wanted, the things I was seeing like one article in the New York Times about you know, food in the Amazon that's probably fulfills their quota for, you know, five years or something mm, yeah. um, but with New World I could, you know, I could write, you know, 50 stories on things that were happening Yeah, I, I, absolutely I think I've definitely found that with slightly more unusual or off the beaten track stories it feels like you've got you've got one shot with that and then you know that, that'll be it for a while and right and yeah. just think of the amazon it's like a part of the world that's you know it's it's like bigger than europe or whatever but everyone just assumes it's this one single you know it's one little patch of forest somewhere and just the same thing's happening in each mm. part of it mm. Absolutely, um, and you know, do, do, do you have a do you have a background like you know in in that world of cuisine gastronomy? Like, have you kind of done your time like in in, in a kitchen or something? Or, or, or... not really? No, yeah. I mean, it's like I worked in like a pizza shop when I was growing up, and like I cook at home. But in terms of like restaurant work, uh, serious restaurant work, no, I've never done that. I mean, I've I've been in a lot of I've spent a oh, sure. lot of time in kitchens and things, especially the last few years. Well, you know, working on it's just I, I kind of got into food writing just um i knew i didn't want to you know write about governments really and yeah. uh i was really into travel and kind of just place writing about place and then mm. you know cuisine just kind of like it just yeah i just i don't know i just uh it just stuck with it yeah i mean it, it feels like a really kind of a really great great way i'm mean, obviously you know you, you are the focus is is cuisine but it feels like it in a, in a way that's a sort of um a vector for for really burrowing down into what makes individual places so so unique and so kind of interesting and you know it's obviously you know food is so closely rooted with with local culture and, and traditions and you know we're thinking about the andes or, or, or like it's imagine the amazon you know there's so much local variation there so it feels um feels like you've you've you're in a really fertile kind of groove to, to yeah to absolutely i mean in, in latin america you have this kind of connection between the history i mean you know thousands of years of mm. food preparation and also the biodiversity i mean it's this kind of combination of things that i think makes this region like just unlike anywhere else in the world yeah 100 percent. and then so and that kind of leads on to my next question in terms of mm -hmm. you know the most kind of exciting things or interesting or surprising things to do with cuisine in 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 the americas well you know where would you kind of highlight as perhaps being you know a real a real kind of hot spot and a real interesting place um <laughs> that's a tough question that's, i know yeah it's i mean everywhere really but i mean it's like peru is is insane just with you know the the geography of peru and in the history of it Mm. For me, it's like I've, I've been, you know, I've gone to every region to, and like I've I'm, I'm, <laughs> explored a lot in 15 years and still I feel like I've only seen a fraction of it. Yeah. I mean, I mean uh, you know, what the types of dishes are cooking and the people are cooking and the variations from village to village and, you know, the seasonal ingredients and it's it's just so unbelievably rich and it's completely different from the coast to the to the andes to the amazon and you know, just like the cultural groups that have come there mm -hmm. for me it's like it's just endless you know rich storytelling to be explored yeah i, I yeah i think i think you know i i, I that definitely chimes in with my uh experience i mean i was i was up in peru last year and and i was sort of you know in in the kind of I guess kind of where the sort of like you know Andes meets meets the Selva like out out beyond um, 
right area near Kiyavamba and like and around there you know you go from village to village you'd pass people and, and they would sort of you know they're carrying these bundles of potatoes and like kind of, you know different kinds which are purple ones ones with sort of you know right. soft golden flesh you know there's so yeah. many different varieties there it's it seems really, and yeah, it, and those yeah. varieties are probably isolated to that particular village, and they're completely undiscovered. Even people in Lima don't don't really even have any idea what's going on in other parts of the country. It's it's just it's it's so unbe- unbelievably diverse, especially in that area. That's like where the Andes meets the jungle. It's yeah. it's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I guess with the Peru as well, you have this kind of interesting dynamic in that you have obviously Lima which is that, that that has that very strong tradition obviously with kind of seafood and then you have Cusco as well as this kind of center you know of, of a meeting place and a melting pot of different places and obviously lots of sort of big injection of, of, of tourism as well there which probably you know might help in some ways might might sort of influence things in in other ways yeah I mean tourism helps I mean it helps creativity in restaurants and things I mean it gives some more flexibility for I mean, more high-end restaurants and more modern things. Yeah. Um, it helps it develop in ways that it probably wouldn't otherwise happen. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that kind of, that's kind of my next question. You know, <laughs> it seems, I mean, I, I, you know, do correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems as though there has been something of a kind of explosion, let's say, in the top past 10, 15 years. Of course, that there's always been a huge variety, but maybe there's more experimentation or there are more places opening up and... I don't know whether that that chimes in with your experience, and 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 then and if so, sort of where that where, where the kind of impetus for that growth is coming from. I mean, is that sort of I don't know uh, to do with growing economies, to do with migration, intercultural mixing. W- what role does tourism play in that? I kind of guess, kind of yeah. What, what are the motors for the kind of changes? Yeah, that are I, going I think on? Peru has a very special a kind of situation in that it was kind of coming out of you know years of kind of civil war and just no one was really there i mean there are a few decades where like no one wanted to be peruvian for the most part and then kind of security um gets better you know um, transportation gets better in between the regions and it's just in food became the thing that uh that kind of united everyone it became the thing that everyone was proud of and mm. It happened in a way that, you know, it's. It, I think it, it's probably not going to happen again anywhere else. Well, it may be, but um, mm. it, it just it became the thing that every taxi driver will, you know, ask you about ceviche now. And it's like <laughs> nobody gave you crap about, you know, football or anything. It was just became food. Food was the thing that it wasn't crappy government, crappy sports. It was the one thing everyone was proud of just because they had delicious food mm-hmm. and then this idea of just how delicious it was it was in every part of the country and how unique it was it just keeps like building and <laughs> i don't know it's just like you ask a peruvian you know what's the best food in the world they'll, they'll always say peruvian and now there's like rankings and things that they you know swear by even if, if they're bullshit <laughs> you know yeah yeah Hundred percent, and it feels like a really yeah. It, as you say, it's quite refreshing to focus on that. Really, you know, I mean, yeah, everyone loves food, right? And 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 it's kind of it's nice to have a focus which isn't like war or economic crisis or right. Conflict. I mean, in, in over the past few, fifteen years, it has developed as well in in a big way in terms of you know fine dining and mm-hmm. um, um, just you know other kinds of restaurants and new ingredients kind of being passed around the country not new ingredients but kind of ingredients being rediscovered mm-hmm. um these amazing things that from you know from the andes and amazon these types of tubers and things that don't grow anywhere else in the world and they're suddenly you know they're all over the place yeah and there's so much you know it's like an endless you know color palette for an artist to to paint with yeah, hundred percent. Um, and, and that that leads me onto the next question, um, which is mm-hmm. going, to, going to be about your, you know, your reporting, and your work in in the Amazon. I'm just going to I'm quote, quote you briefly here. Um, you know, on on New World, you say I've found a place where rodents disperse seeds across the forest floor, potatoes grow on vines, fungi glows in the dark, ants taste like lemongrass, herbs make your lips tingle, 
at Ingle. Vanilla pods grow to the size of bananas, and all of them depend on one another to exist. So it sounds like, you know, it's an incredible sort of uh, description you, you give there. I mean, can you, can, you tell, can you tell me a bit more about your you know, the, the, what you've been up to in the Amazon and sort of the places you've been going and the Yeah, I mean, it's like, I've been going for 15 years. I go as much as I can. It's, and it's still, like, I'm still finding new, I mean, I went to Brazil a few months ago and uh, kind of like the upper Rio Negro area where it's um, mm-hmm. kind of near Venezuela border-ish. Okay. Um, it's just incredible amount of things that I had never heard of. Um, these like fruits that they're burying underground to uh, kind of just fermenting them underground for you know for weeks at a time. It just has these strong flavors. These peppers that are you know the uh, the Beniwa girl. These peppers that are uh, um, that are it's like part of their you know spiritual life. They're so connected to them that it's like you know they give them to babies and, wow. <laughs> and things. Just so it's like it's like a cleansing formula but it's the it's just it that territory in particular it's so vulnerable for one but in terms of food and cuisine and ingredients it's so absolutely unbelievable that it's it i i there's so much to be discovered and it's like we're only barely scratching the surface of of like you know famous chefs and things like we're pulling out one ingredient and everybody's wow, you know, when they when Alex Atala brings Jambu and into a you know Dom in Sao Paulo, but it's there's like <laughs> there's ten thousand Jambus, you know, ten million of them, and it's <laughs> it's all these places are increasingly you know being threatened, especially in Brazil right now, in Peru as well, you know, logging, oil exploration, um, mining, and it's it's just you know it's it's frightening of course yeah it's scary that we're going to lose all of these things and we probably will yeah i mean and i guess that's the kind of paradox you know like you yeah. think, think about colombia like the, the civil war there kind of winding down maybe like venezuela sort of situation there maybe stabilizing in the kind of coming years brazil under bolsonaro they're kind of he's obviously trying to declare open season really on yeah. on the amazon at the same time as, as a lot of the amazon is maybe kind of big opening up to to let's say um you know greater human Industry. development because yeah. But yeah because you know it, it's not yeah. a place that that's that's ever been empty of humans um right but right. But, but you know opening up as you say, as you say to kind of industry development there's yeah. the, the, the you know we're fi- you know we're finding these amazing things but but also they're suddenly being put at risk so, so i kind of wonder what you right. what you think you know are there sort of could these you know we uh, think about perhaps you know acai and sustainable fruit planting and these new things you know do, do you think these could sort of hold a, a key or kind of one sort of like alternative to yeah to, yeah 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 definitely i mean um i mean it, i mean it's a double-edged sword of course like acai i mean it it could just because it requires you know essentially biodiversity to kind of sustain itself it's you know could be it's a pretty powerful thing if you could like if this forest product could have so much um, value but but there becomes a point to where it's so valuable that you know they're cutting other parts of forest down to you know plant more acai with other plants and things but still it's uh, um, yeah but in, I don't know where I'm going with that but uh, more more kind of sustainable forest products grown on, you know, created on indigenous, you know, territories and things that it gives these people, these very impoverished people opportunity to resist, you know, yeah. the loggers and, and everyone else that's kind of coming and just kind of chopping down their resources and just kind of a lot of times just giving them like t-shirts and, you know, a few bucks for some, some job that lasts a few weeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, but um, it, I mean, it take, it's the thing is, it's like it's such small impact. Every little most products, it's like I'm, I'm writing about. I've written about it before. This um, tucupi negro or tucupi preto in Brazil. It's um, this kind of uh, fermented yuca sauce. Wow. That a lot of kind of chefs are using in Colombia and Peru, Ecuador and Brazil, and it's this amazing, very kind of 
umami bomb that everyone is taste you know wants more of and it's it's amazing but at the same time and it's like uh now, like chefs are working with communities to kind of develop products with it pedro miguel chiafino in lima is doing an amazing thing he has a um ngo called dispensa amazonica okay i think there's a web- website you can look up but um great he has an amazing project working with uh, a few communities in, in Peru and the kind of they're making commercial product of it. But at the same time, it's like uh, these are very small scale things. And I mean, if it'd be great if we could, you know, find 5,000 small scale projects like that to, to where shops and restaurants are working with communities to kind of source these things. And it, I mean, every little bit makes an impact, but it's it's still it's nothing compared to the mining and you know logging industries that are kind of coming and wiping out mm. mass you know swaths of forest. Sure, I, I guess that I guess that's it. You know, the sort of logic of of the way the global economy is structured it demands things to be done on a huge scale. Yeah. You know, it wants these yeah. huge supply chains, and and it's you know it's a question of can you begin to rival those or, or is you know are there other things you can do i guess that's a really that's a really kind of tr- tricky question there but yeah I'll, I'll, I will, I'll definitely link to 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 that ngo you, you mentioned in the yeah. in the show notes so people can, can can check them out um right. and 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 what's and what's kind of next for you you know i mean obviously new world is still kind of you know comparatively in, it, in its kind of infancy like you know yeah. do you have big plans for that and and what's the, yeah. what are the next places on the on the kind of mm-hmm. horizon yeah, New Weller, we're, I mean, we're still playing away. It's like, we're, essentially, we need money to grow it. And uh, mm. so, <laughs> like every every website, I guess. Um, sure. and, and it's like we're slowly kind of creating new uh, partnerships and things that hopefully at one day it'll take off a bit. But right now, it's just kind of plugging away on the side when I can. Um, I'm doing another book with um, Rogelio Martinez about... Uh, it's a more broad kind of food in Latin America book. Great. And um, I'm also um, writing a book with a chef in Iceland. So much of the, this summer, I'm kind of in Iceland back and forth, oh. which it's a nice change of pace. Fantastic. Yeah. When, when when can we expect those 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 two next books? Those books will be twenty, probably next year or the year after. It, it's still they're still a long way away. Sure. Yeah, I, I know the feeling. Um, uh, fantastic. Well I'll, well, I'll look out for those. And, and yeah, and just finally, you know, um, if any of our listeners are kind of going to be finding themselves in 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 Peru or in Lima or in the coming months, where would you where would you recommend? Where are your kind of like you know those are your top three uh, tips for for Lima or indeed indeed elsewhere? Uh, places to eat. You yeah. Know, or... Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, like, like I, <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I have to say Central, not just because I. You know, I, I wrote the book with Virgilia, but uh, just because it's such a profound, you know, dining experience, you'll taste things you've never had before. I also recommend uh, um, Amaz. That's uh, Pedro Miguel Chiafino, who does the uh, um, that website I mentioned, the, uh, has the NGO. He has, it's kind of a very kind of soulful Amazonian restaurant. There's two branches of it in Lima. Okay. You know, again, you'll, you'll, it's just an amazing flavor because you won't have anywhere else and you probably have to have a ceviche somewhere of course um there's so many good ones um usually i recommend lamar just because it's you know they have some great dishes on on that menu even though you know there's a lamar everywhere now it seems but it's still the one lima i think you know still stands out sure uh yeah, I could go on for days. <laughs> I'm sure. Like listing restaurants. <laughs> well, listen, I appreciate I appreciate you. Uh, uh, I was putting putting you on the spot, but no, there's, there's some great um, yeah. some great tips there. Um, well, uh, Nicholas Gill, thanks so much for, for joining us on on the podcast, and and, and good luck with uh, all the future endeavors. Look forward to reading a lot more about the cuisine of uh, Americas and beyond in the future. Thanks for having And that's it for another episode of Miradas. In the show, we heard from Jamie Schenk discussing consultas populares in Colombia. We had Andres Velasco on the challenges to liberal democracy in Latin America. You can find his new book on Apple Books, I'm told. And finally, we had Nicholas Gill of New World magazine talking about food and sustainability in the Amazon, the Andes and beyond. 
Next week, we're discussing Bolivia's election later this year and whether Evo Morales will hang on for a fourth term. We'll be hearing about the campaign to abolish ICE and protect immigrants in the US. And we sit down with the director of a very special film from Paraguay, which is scooping up awards worldwide. Please do rate us and subscribe to Moradas on iTunes, Spotify, uh, and share us with anyone you think would be interested in the show. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at MuradasPod. Uh, check out our website and join our mailing list and write us at MuradasPodcast.com. Our music, as ever, is by the great La Motivante, and our logo is by Diego Cumplido. There's more on them on our website as well. Uh, You've heard from my co-host John Bartlett. I'm Laurie Blair. Thanks for both of us for listening and see you next time.